Section 8 of Recollections of Life in Ohio from 1813 to 1840 by William Cooper Howells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sue Anderson. Chapter 18 Social Conditions Neither Rich Nor Poor Dress Spinning and Weaving at Home Stuffs Produced Price of Cloth Distilleries prevalence of whiskey drinking, no temperance societies. The social condition of the people was rather primitive and very simple. None of them were wealthy. The possession of a quarter section or two of land pretty well cleared up, that is, about a third or half of it under culture, with log, house, and barn, was thought to make a man well off. The money value of the wealth of the average of farms would not be over $2,000, including the improvements. Nearly every man lived on a piece of land of his own, and this was usually in 80 or 160 acre tracts. Their stock was small, and mostly their families were large. Almost every man was the son of a farmer in an older settlement, who had come into this to have a farm of his own out of what his father could spare, or some man who had been a farm laborer or renter in an older place had bought land and was opening out a home. Among such people there were no rich and none very poor. Most of them lived very plainly. They usually had enough to eat, though they were liable to run short a while before harvest. All that would bring money was sold to provide for taxes and such payments as only money would make, and those who had payments to make on their land were pretty sure to sell themselves bare and were often hard put to it to maintain themselves in provisions. As for dress, that was very plain, and fortunately, there was but little temptation to extravagance in this way. The women of the family, in almost every instance, produced something to wear. Besides the knitting and sewing, which was the work of the older women, the wool of the few sheep each farmer kept was spun in the family. So also was the flax that grew on the flax patch, which was regularly cleared off in the winter, sowed with flax in March, harvested in June, and immediately planted with potatoes, yielding two important Irish crops in one year. The wool was sometimes carted at home, but usually it was sent off to one of the carding machines that would be put up in a mill for the purpose of preparing the wool for spinning by carding and making it into rolls that were about a yard long and three-fourths of an inch in diameter, light and soft, and from which an even thread was easily spun, either on a large spinning wheel or the little treadle wheel used also for flax. The quarter-acre flax patch and the few sheep would, almost without noticing the expense or labor, produce the material for clothing a large family. The women pulled the flax, or at least helped to pull it, and helped in dressing it, and always spun it up. One or two grown-up daughters would dispose of a large supply of flax and wool. The best flax was spun into a fine thread for linen, of which shirts and likewear were made. A coarser quality was made into sheeting and summer pantaloons. Summer coats were never worn, for when it was too warm for a cloth coat, 
men went in their shirt-sleeves. The same short method was adopted as to summer shoes, omitting the shoes and stockings. The wool was spun into an average grade for cloth and flannel. A mixed cloth was made with a linen warp and woolen filling, which they called linsey, that was worn mostly by the women and children. It was made lighter than cloth and cost less than flannel. Very often it was woven in plaid figures, and when new, looked well, and was esteemed quite a desirable article for everyday dresses. The young women always thought themselves well-dressed in a new linsey dress for winter, which, when new, would be worn to meeting, singing schools, and frolics, as they called all social gatherings, where the young people made merry together. As the colors faded, the dresses came into everyday wear, and they were so durable that they lasted till the next year's manufacture was brought in. Sometimes people made their flannels in plaids, which were nice and wore well. Fulled cloth was made at home till it was woven, when it would be taken to the fulling mill to be finished. This was worn by the men and big boys, and made excellent clothing, though it was not fine, and the color was apt to fade. There was hardly a family of girls where one of them did have a loom, and weave all the plainer kinds of stuff for themselves and for others, so that spinning and weaving was practically done at home. The prices of these manufactures are worthy of remark when compared to other produce. The stuff was woven one yard wide, which was the width when finished, except the fulled cloth, which shrunk to three-fourths. The cloth was estimated at $1.25 to $1.50 per yard. Lindsay was about 50 cents, flannel 75, flax linen fine 50, coarser kinds 25 to 37 and a half. At the same time, wheat was rarely over 35 cents a bushel, corn 25, and oats 12 and a half. This was a great disproportion in comparison with the present rates, when the quantity of wheat that would buy that coarse cloth would now buy broadcloth of the finest quality worn. Another manufacture of these times, and which flourished through all changes, was whiskey. No difference if grain was scarce or dear, or times hard, or the people poor, they would make and drink whiskey and the number of little distilleries was wonderful. Within two miles of where we lived, there were three of them. They were small concerns, but they produced enough. They were commonly fitted up with a twenty-five or forty-gallon still and half a dozen tubs. They might, perhaps, have produced a barrel a day, if pushed to their capacity. The distillers would exchange a gallon of whiskey for a bushel of corn or rye, and when the whiskey jug was empty, a boy would be sent on a bag of grain perched on an old horse to the still house to make the exchange and renew the supply. People were not particular about the age of their liquor, and it was often drank on the day it was made. The custom was for every man to drink it on all occasions that offered, and the women would take it sweetened and reduced to toddy. At raisings, huskings, log-rollings, and all manner of social gatherings, it was used as an invigorator and a sign of hospitality, 
and the manner of taking it was from the neck of the jug, each man swallowing as much as he wanted. The custom was a sore trial to father, who had practiced the total abstinence principle, and who tried to do so in this neighborhood, but no amount of talk or protesting would satisfy his neighbors that it was not stinginess that induced him to refuse to furnish whiskey at raisings and on other occasions when he called upon the neighbors for the usual gratuitous assistance. With this pressure he gave way and furnished it at such times under protest. At that day there were no temperance societies, though they soon after came in vogue. But none of the early temperance societies pretended to take a stand on total abstinence. The most they aimed at was limited use. Chapter 19. Absence of Game, Wild Fruits, Cultivated Fruits, Supply of Snakes, Copperhead Bites, Exciting Adventure, Remedies of Copperhead Poison, Planting an Orchard, Tobacco Raising, there was not much hunting or fishing on this region. The country was too well settled for game, and the streams were too small for fishing. Occasionally I saw some deer and turkeys in the woods, but I never got a shot at them. Of the wild fruits, the variety was not great, being almost confined to wild plums, grapes, service berries, etc. The plums were in great abundance and most delicious in quality. I never saw as good before or since. The service berries were more plenty than I have seen them elsewhere, and we could often get enough of them to be of some use. The cultivated fruits were in tolerable supply, and peaches were as plenty as could be desired, so plenty that no one thought of buying or selling them. They were to be had for asking when to be had at all. They were distilled, and plenty of brandy made of them, but their season was short, and they were scattered as to locality and time of ripening, so that it was not a very great business. The grapes that grew wild there were not so large as I have seen, but they were good and of a pleasant flavor, some quite sweet. One of the natural features of the country was a good supply of snakes, the worst ones being copperheads and rattlesnakes. The prevalent rock of that country was a fine-grained sand rock that lay about on the surface of the ground almost everywhere, in the form of flat stones, usually so thin that the sun would warm them through. This made comfortable quarters for such serpents, and they throve in the fields and open woods to a troublesome extent. And what was worse about it, was that they would stay under or on these warm stones long after nightfall, or stretch themselves in the smooth pathways at nights if the weather was warm, so as to be really dangerous to the boys who nearly all went barefooted. The first summer we were on this place, my youngest brother was playing among the weeds in the garden when some snake, which we supposed to be a copperhead, bit him and disappeared. He was terribly poisoned by it, and suffered a great deal of pain. The bite was on his foot, which was swollen and extremely painful. We got some remedies from a doctor, consisting of sweet oil and some kind of purgatives, but he was not free from the effects of it for many weeks. He was then only five years old. This was in June, 
a season when the snake is not thought to be so poisonous as in warmer weather. Later in the summer, about the first of September, one night we heard the dogs barking at something in the woods a short distance from the house. Like boys who are always ready for any sort of game, four of us went nearly a quarter of a mile into the thick underbrush, down a hillside, to find the dogs barking under a tree where some animal had climbed up. The most we could possibly have caught would have been an opossum or woodchuck or rabbit, neither of which would have been worth the catching in the summer, but we could not forgo the opportunity to get some game ever so worthless. Finding nothing, we struck across to a path leading to the house, but we had scarcely reached the pathway when my brother Tom leaped into the air and screamed with fright and pain. It was only starlight, but he insisted that he saw a snake glide away from his feet. There was no doubt that a snake had bitten him, and we knew it was either a rattlesnake or copperhead, for the pain he was suffering was terrible, and the foot was swelling rapidly. We had heard it said that it was a good thing to cut the skin around the bitten part and wash it with water, and as we happened to be near a spring we went to it. I gave Tom my knife, and he cut his foot, and we washed it in the water as long as he could endure the pain. But the poison soon began to affect his mind, and he was crazy with the belief that he was surrounded by thousands of snakes. So we suspended the washing, and I took Tom on my back and started for home, the others running by me and holding to me. While we sat by the spring, though there might have been snakes in plenty, we had no dread of them. But the moment we started home, we were seized with a panic, and we ran, increasing the speed as we went. I remember that before I got to the house, which was more than forty rods away, and uphill, not very steep, I leaped every step as far and as high as I could, for, being barefooted, I was in dread of snakes at every step. And really, I should think, if I had come down on a snake at one of those leaps, it would have been bad for him, and he would have had to bite quick to hurt me. They met us from the house with a light, which relieved us of the panic. Tom was taken indoors, and his case looked to. By that time, the swelling had reached his body, and the symptoms were alarming. We had heard that whiskey was useful in such cases, but we had not learned that it was to be drunken as an antidote. I was sent off to the nearest tavern for a supply of whiskey, with which we bathed the part affected with the swelling. How much good it did I cannot tell, but after a few days the swelling went down. He was kept on as much milk diet as possible, and besides that, got a goodly share of all the cures for snake bites that the neighbors would mention. The chief remedy of this kind was a plant of the wild lettuce family, which grew in the woods. It was there called lion's heart, as it had a heart-shaped leaf. It was an opium-bearing plant, which exuded a thick milk from the stem and root. This was mixed and boiled with sweet cow's milk, and poultices made of it, which were kept to the foot and leg. We consumed a vast amount of this plant, whether it did any good or not. I think it quite likely that the opium it contained was the useful quality in it. 
It seems to me now that Tom was laid up over a month from this, and was unable to do anything till fall. For several years afterwards he complained of a return of the symptoms at the same time of the year. The clearing for an orchard was pretty heavy work, as the trees had to be cut off entirely. We had never been very good farmers, but when it came to clearing land it put us to our best efforts. Father was no axe-man at all, and I was not stout of my age and only moderately skilled in the art, although I improved afterwards. The hardest labor to me was the grubbing, that is, digging out the bushes by the roots, for they were large and very firmly set. They were dug out with a mattock which had to be sharp enough to cut the roots and yet thick-edged enough to stand striking the stones. The bushes were awfully tough on this ground, and had it not been for the help we hired, I guess the clearing would scarcely have been done at all. A new enterprise helped us out of this job. For two or three years the people in and near this neighborhood had been raising tobacco of a particular variety, which proved a profitable business and helped materially to supply the farmers with articles they needed and to pay for their lands, for the crop would mostly bring cash. The kind of tobacco raised was a variety that had been raised in Maryland and was known as light or yellow tobacco. It differed from the Virginia crop in being a lighter and finer plant, and being cured by the heat of fire instead of the air of a shed, as was the heavier kind. It was left for the leaf to ripen or turn yellow upon the stalk, when it was gathered and dried over great fires in a close house, so constructed as to confine the heat around the leaves until they were thoroughly cured. The manner of producing and preparing this tobacco was as follows. The finest quality was grown upon newly cleared land for the first crop. The land chosen was light soil, somewhat sandy, mostly a chestnut ridge was deemed the best, and was cleared off in the winter. There was a ridge of thin land near our new house that was suitably situated for an orchard, on which we decided to raise a crop of tobacco the second year, which was 1826, and so we set to clearing and fencing it in the winter. It was pretty well timbered, and a sturdy undergrowth of young oaks, hickories, ironwood, and anything that was tough covered all the ground. To grub these out was no fool of a job, and it made very hard work. With some hired help we got it done, but we could not cut off the timber as we should have done, and had to deaden a great part of it. By the time, however, that we had it about cleared, a man by the name of J. H. proposed to raise the tobacco in partnership with us, which proposition was accepted, and we were left free to put in our summer crops on the farm. The bargain with H. required us to help in planting the tobacco, which had to be done with dispatch. Very early in the season, say the latter part of February, H. came and burned a great brush heap on a rich spot of ground, about a rod square, for a plant bed. The burning of the brush was to kill all the weed seeds and grubs in the ground, which was in its primeval condition. When it was cooled off, it was raked well and the tobacco seeds sown in it, 
and then the hole was covered with light brush to keep the hens off as they were likely to scratch it to pieces in about six weeks the plants were to be seen and about the last of june we set them out as cabbages are planted each plant in the ground singly the ground after being ploughed was marked with furrows of two feet apart into which we set the plants about one foot apart this had to be done when a rain was coming on and the ground was wet it was also common to plant while it was raining h and i did the planting in one or two days i don't now remember which but i do remember the kind of feeling i had in my back afterwards the tobacco grew very well but as it was never our luck to have our dishes turned upwards when it rained porridge the market value of the tobacco was greatly reduced by the quantity likely to be produced h got to understand the fact and he persuaded father that the crop had better not be divided and proposed terms of dissolution father to pay so much when the crop was gathered and take it all or to pay him so much and finish the crop father chose the latter which was a grave mistake as nearly all the work was still to be done so we had the tobacco crop on hand which fortunately came on after the harvest but sadly interfered with putting in a crop of wheat for the next year at least it made the work harder to cure the tobacco the first thing was to build a house to cure it in this we built of logs it was put up in one high story say fifteen or sixteen feet to the square it had no windows was covered in tight and chinked and daubed between the logs a door was cut in one end which was made to shut tight on the ground was built a stone flue open at one end outside the house into which the wood was put for heating it the inner end of the flue was left open for the smoke and heat to ascend through the inside of the house then the space was filled with tiers of beams about four feet apart on which the tobacco was to be hung as soon as the leaves began to turn yellow we gathered them by stripping the ripest from the stalk these we tied into convenient bunches and parting each bunch hung them astride a stick made by splitting like laths four feet long when this was full it was taken to the top of the tobacco house and the upper tier of joints filled with rows of these sticks care being taken not to have the green leaves so close as to mold or sour when the house was filled we lighted a fire in the flue the fire was raised by degrees and kept at a moderate heat till all the tobacco turned to a bright yellow by perfecting the ripening process after this the heat was raised till it was hot enough to bake bread in any part of the house and continued till the leaves were thoroughly dried the object being to cure them dry before they turned brown or lost the bright yellow which was reckoned the perfection of the quality this firing took eight or nine days and it had to be kept going constantly or the tobacco would spoil by becoming spotted when cured it was stowed anywhere under shelter till damp weather would come on when the leaves became pliable and could be tied into bunches called hands each of which would weigh about half a pound 
We sold ours in this condition for a price greatly below what we had expected to get for it, and at considerable loss of time and labor. The price of the yellow tobacco had been very high, some of the lots bringing as much as half a dollar a pound for the newly cured leaf. There was great speculation among the people who cultivated it as to what it was used for, though the general conclusion was that it was sent to a German market and used in dyeing. But I never really found out the object of curing tobacco in this way, nor do I know whether it is so cured now. We never repeated the cultivation of tobacco. It was introduced into that part of the country by settlers from Maryland who had been used to it in their homes. One of the hardest things about curing the tobacco was watching the fires, which were kept up night and day for over a week, and when there was not sufficient help to keep the fires going, it was very trying. For my own part, I was nearly worn out by attending our tobacco fires, and I became so sleepy that I could hardly keep awake on my feet. I remember once that I actually went to sleep walking along the road and walked several rods till I fell into a ditch and thus awoke. This was on the way home from mill when one of the boys was along, who enjoyed the fun of seeing me stagger. We lightened the labor of watching the tobacco fires by roasting corn and eating peaches, which were just in season. But this did not supply the place of sleep to growing boys. Chapter 20. Going to Mill water mills, horse mills, scarcity of money, cash articles, grain basis, price of wheat, wages, Ohio Canal and work on it, methods of travel, taverns and tavern keeping, travel by carriage, travel on horseback. Going to mill was one of the features of our kind of life, and it was far from being unpleasant. In all that country there were small streams, which, though they had some kind of mills upon them, were sure to go dry or freeze up when grinding was wanted. One of the difficulties was that the new farmers generally ran out of grain just before harvest, when there was plenty of water, and as soon as the wheat ripened, grinding had to be done, by which time the water was dried up. Steam power had not been introduced in a small way and there was no substitute for water but horsepower. Accordingly, they used it for mills, and every here and there some thrifty fellow built a horse mill. A big shed was put up and covered in to protect a single pair of very light and cheap millstones, sometimes second-hand from a water mill, and a great wheel on an upright shaft to which four sweeps were fixed, for the attachment of horses. The wheel was overhead and armed with cogs to transmit the power to the mill. Sometimes they would have a cheap bolting apparatus, extemporized from book muslin, and sometimes they had none, and if you ground corn it had to be sifted at home. And these mills, though they punctually took toll, did not furnish their own power. Each customer took a couple of horses with harness on, and hitched them on to the mill to make the power. Sometimes they would meet others at mill when they would unite their teams, putting on six or eight horses, and then it would go pretty merrily. 
but it took about so much power, either in time or teams, to run the mill, and if you joined you had to wait till the united grists were ground. I always had a good idea, after my horse mill experience, how much power it took to run millstones. Two horses could turn a mill if the horses were stout and the mill was light, but if it was otherwise it was of no use to talk of the mills of the gods grinding slowly. These were slower still, and they ground exceedingly coarse. But the mills were a wonderful place to gossip, for you had to be there all day to get a moderate grist done, and there was time to hear and tell a great deal. I found our small horses very unpopular, and when there were good teams there, it was hard to join with others. We had another resource, which was to go a long distance away to a water mill on a large stream. This took more time, but it was far more agreeable. When I look back to those times, I am struck with the scarcity of money, and the difficulty of getting it and the expedients of barter that were resorted to. For instance, at the stores there were articles that they called cash articles that you could not buy without money. These were mostly tea, coffee, etc. Leather, iron, powder, lead, and like articles were also of this class. These things could not be bartered for with the produce of the country, except a few products that were treated as of cash value. Among them were linen, cloth, feathers, beeswax, deerskins, and furs, which were not too heavy to transport and would be taken by wholesale dealers in payment for goods. Among the people in the country, trade was conducted on a grain basis. Thus, a day's work in harvest was paid with a bushel of wheat or a bushel and a half of corn or rye or buckwheat. The shoemakers, tailors, blacksmiths, etc., took their pay in grain, the customer always finding the leather, cloth, or iron, and the mechanic doing the work. We were thirty-five miles from the Ohio, the nearest point where there were merchant mills, and cash was paid for wheat. Consequently, the price of wheat with us was the cost of transportation less than the price of the river. Fifty cents a bushel was a great price for it at the river, and as two horses and a man were required for four days to make the journey in good weather with thirty-five or forty bushels of wheat, and a great deal longer if the roads were bad, it was not to be expected that we could realize more than twenty-five cents in cash for it. But there was no sale for it in cash. The nominal price for it in trade was usually thirty cents, and the storekeepers took it at that rate putting enough on the goods to make it up. I remember once taking a load of wheat to the store in our wagon for a man who had worked for it, which he sold for twenty-five cents, and took his pay in iron at twelve and one-half cents a pound. We were situated halfway between the Ohio River and the Ohio Canal when it came to be made, which was in 1825, 6, 7, 8. That part of it nearest to us was in the process of building in 1826-1827, and this afforded work and money to the men who could do it during the winter, 
at prices they seemed glad to get and thought they were doing well to take. Hands were paid eight to ten dollars a month for chopping, digging, etc., receiving board and lodgings in addition. But every wet day was counted out, the laborer losing his time and the contractor the board. In this way, it would take all winter to make about two months' time. It was hard-earned money, but it was esteemed worth the labor. There were certain things for which money was required to be raised, the chief of which were taxes, and to these the ready money was applied. It also took money to travel with, if you went in good style, but if a man had to go somewhere and had but little money, he would carry his provisions with him and apply his cash for shelter or a part of his fare. Journeys were made on horseback or on foot, and seldom extended more than a few days, mostly being within a hundred miles, which could be made with only one night out. For taxes but little money was needed, as the assessments were light. The cost of travel in our part of the country was about sixty-five to seventy-five cents a day for a man, and a dollar for a man and horse. This included everything but drinks, which, being only whiskey, were pretty cheap, say six and one-fourth cents a dram. For a sober-looking man, the bottle would be set on the table at dinner, or offered to him after he paid his bill without extra charge. The topper was not so indulged. Tavern-keeping was reckoned a good business then, and it was so, for it was likely to command a certain cash income, which, even though small, was valuable. At the low prices of the time there was profit in it, as the fare was plain, usually consisting of ham, eggs, chickens, turkeys, game, and now and then beef with potatoes, corn, and wheat bread, maple sugar and molasses, honey, etc. The victuals were generally well cooked, and sometimes accompanied with good tea and coffee, but at times these were horribly bad. The taverns were small and well strung along the road, for night overtook travelers at all places, and they seldom wanted to travel far after dark, on roads that were mostly through the forest. Farmers who lived by the roadsides would always keep travelers at a cost a shade below the taverns, and many of them made it a point to keep such as called, for the sake of the ready money it would yield. Traveling then was a peaceful and unpretentious affair. If a man had a carriage, he traveled in that, and was a kind of nabob if he could do so. On some routes there were stagecoaches, but very few of them in Ohio, and it was a princely proceeding to travel in them. The well-to-do citizen put money in his purse, took his horse, well saddled, rolled up his overcoat in a portmanteau which was tied to the back of his saddle, put his change of clothing and the like into a pair of leather saddle-bags, a kind of wallet that balanced on the saddle by having the ends filled. If he kept a servant, the servant, similarly accoutred, rode a horse behind the master after the old English fashion. The less consequential traveller took his own horse and waited upon himself, a more independent way was to walk, or, as the Scotch-Irish people always called it, travel. A hardy man, in the habit of walking, 
would go as far in a day as a horse would carry him, and on a long journey, forty miles a day was not reckoned at all extraordinary. End of section 8